you open your Bibles, turn them on to the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 9, we'll head all the way through to chapter 5, verse 3. Esther 4, 9. Then you love when a verse starts with the unpronounceable. Hat hack. What a name to start with, really, Lord. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in, the, stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. Father, as we open your word now, Lord, thank you that that is entirely inspired. Lord, even if my message isn't, that is. Uh, Lord, thank you that we engage with a God who speaks today. Lord, so I pray that your word would go out and do all that you want to do with it. Amen. But I'm going to start at a real low baseline for you, okay? So just hold on to your trousers. If you were a Disney princess, who would you be? Speak to the person next to you. And uh, if you were a Disney princess, now you can push that. Tinkerbell was a princess who got rejected, unfortunately. So you can include her. Rob wanted to know whether um, a lady from Pixar was included. Sure, I'll let you have that. So if you were a Disney princess, who would you be? With the person next to you. Controversial, right? Any auroras here? Any auroras in the house? I'm just going to bring the house down. Who's Elsa? Uh, did anybody go with like the Encanto girl? What's her name? I don't even know. Anybody unusual? Go for something unusual? Cinderella. Andy found his Cinderella side. We love that here at SML. Any advances on Cinderella? Bell, yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, now, listen, uh, I, I told you the bar was set really low. I hope as we open up this narrative, you'll see some of the connections to, to that idea. We're going to trip through a, a world of male vanity and female courage, oftentimes the backscript to the Disney movies. We uh, love some of those kind of modern paradigm movies, don't we? We love the Elsas. We love the Tangled. Anybody say Tangled? I don't even know what that girl's name is, but the Tangled Girl? Rapunzel, let down your hair. We love her, don't we? And the brave girl, who's she? Yeah, I'm just testing your knowledge tonight. I love some of those. And, and when we open up Esther, we find she is far more Elsa than Aurora, although she's got a bit of Persian jasmine around her. I like that. But listen to this as a storyline for the book. The Persian king handpicks a Jewish nobody, an orphan, in fact, who goes from rags to insta-perfect perfection. Through a year, if you like, a season of a kind of combi Love Island stroke X Factor. She then becomes the queen. She discovers an awful plot, uh, an annihilation plot against her people. And she turns the tables on the enemy and saves the day. How's that for a Disney movie? Any takers? The problem with this story is that Disney just won't touch it. They went with the king of Egypt, didn't they? Was it? Disney, who did Kings of Prince of Egypt, but they're not going to touch this one. Why? Because it's essentially about a girl who gets trafficked against her will. She doesn't want to be there. She's got no desire to be there in that place. In fact, she's getting a one-way ticket away from the Jewish return to the homeland, to Jerusalem. When you go for this contest, it's not like you can just, oh, I lost, okay, back to home. No, it doesn't work like that. You stay in the king's harem. That's it for life. You're the king's possession. This was no opportunity for somebody that looked great for a Jewish girl. Totally the opposite. In fact, she's taken into a world of power and politics where she has almost no voice. And it's into that context we find these really interesting stories of courage. Now, before we get to know our main protagonist, we're going to spin back a little bit and introduce you to Queen Vashti. In fact, before I introduce you to Queen Vashti, I need to talk about Xerxes. And by the way, if you're thinking, which Xerxes? This is the really wealthy one. There's three in the ancient world that we may, may mix up. I know. Who knew? Xerxes was a man of great power. He's probably in his early 30s in this story. He's maybe two, three, four, five years into his reign, he follows after people like Darius the Great and Sirius who started the return of the exiled Jewish community back to their homeland. So that is now in motion. And the kings in some senses are benevolent. They, they want to make the world a better place. And we're introduced to this guy who rules, and get this, he rules from India through to North Africa. You try and take one of those nations, two of those nations today and try and merge them into one entity. Israel and Afghanistan, I don't know, it's just not going to fly, is it? He ruled over the lot. His palace was on the Acropolis, on the high point, overlooking everybody else. Anybody seen the movie 300? Absolutely, it's awful, just bloodthirsty. But some of you may have heard of the movie 300. It, it, it shows this guy Xerxes. In fact, if you type in Xerxes right now to Google image search, you'll see the movie character. And you see him carried on this huge plinth and a throne at the top of the plinth by thousands of people. Now, that's an exaggeration. However, he did have 10,000 immortals, men who were essentially, they, they were considered to be invincibles. So if you were to try and step up on the throne and push him off just for a laugh, see what would happen, you wouldn't even make 
it to the first step towards the top of the throne. This guy was incredible in his wealth. It's hard for us these days to understand. He was also referred to, and a lot of the Persians were, get this, this is really interesting for us as Christians. He was known as the great king of kings. The Persian kings. King of kings. Interesting for us because we hold to Christ who's revealed to us by John in in Revelation as the great king of kings. Interesting that that will be in the psyche, if you like, of the early writers. Christ, the true king of kings. Now, I don't know how you do parties, but for me, with three kids under eight, the sooner it's over, the better, right? Anybody else feeling me? Like, and they don't help with the cleanup, right? That's all on me. See them out the door, clear up the stuff. Anybody been to a, a wedding that's lasted more than a day? Any hands up? I went to a French wedding which lasted four days. I mean, four days of partying. Any, anybody, in, in, can you go beyond four days or was it three days. three days? Anybody go beyond three or four days? Three? Three days of partying. It's a wonderful event. You kind of wake up, you're groggy, you just crack on with the food. Uh, love it. Get this, Xerxes held a six-month-long ego trip focused around a feast for 15,000 people. His nobles, his courtiers, his military leaders, and following that, just to show that he was a kind and, and loving king to his people, he extended the feast to everybody. All the people of Susa were now invited to this feast, showing that kind of kind side. However, meanwhile, while he's in, in, engaging in this this activity, the queen, Vashti, whose name simply means beauty, she holds a very dignified feast for the ladies. It's a lovely affair. And it was going great guns until the message came through, the king wants to see you and wants to parade you in front of his nobles and his military commanders. Anybody feeling a bit like Elsa right now? Any Elsa's in the house responding to that one? And that's the Elsa spirit right there. No way. I'm not going to be humiliated. In fact, I'm not going to be treated like one of your concubines. You've got enough of them. Choose one of them. Not me. I'm the queen. The man who commanded an empire could not make a woman do what he wanted in his own pad. Now, here's a really interesting story. She's not necessarily a God-fearer, as we'd understand, but she refuses to obey him. The king explodes with alcohol-fueled anger. How dare she disobey? The people around him give him some really interesting advice. In fact, the piece of advice he goes with is this. Well, first of all, you need to sign some things into law because Vashti needs to go and never, never enter your presence again. Second of all, you need to write to everybody to tell them that enough is enough. Men are in charge. Seriously, men are in charge. Okay, so make that really clear. Otherwise, you're going to have women all around the world rising up against their husbands and, and, and bossing it like that. You can't have that. The irony is, you're about to write to people around the whole of the empire. Basically, the women need to obey, the, uh, obey men. And you're basically going to tell them that this has happened, aren't you? The irony is that in communicating that, the story's going to come out. What really happened? Vashti's story is rarely told, but it's not inconsequential to the, uh, as some kind of subplot here. If women had a voice before this, they have nothing now. And that's the context we find ourselves as we're introduced to Esther. 
mentioned she's a Jewish girl. She goes by her Persian name, which is Esther, which means star. And she goes through this year-long beauty process, taken from friends and family with no exit, as I've mentioned. She wins the favor of everybody she speaks to. Just wins it. And you start to see God is with this girl. God is just accompanying her. In every situation, he's there and he's giving her favor. And finally, she wins the favor of the king who makes her queen. It's a beautiful story in some senses. She's told, however, your concealer is going to cover some of your, your blemishes and things, but actually you need to conceal your Jewish identity. That's Mordecai, her uncle, speaking. You need to conceal who you are because you've got to make it in a Persian empire now. The Jewishness can't come through. Now the scene shifts pretty quickly to the political and the social and there's a lot of unrest. In fact, there are forces that are moving against the people of God. There's a politician called Haman that we're introduced to, you, introduced to and he is, he's slighted by Esther's uncle. Just slighted. Esther's uncle doesn't bow down to him. That's enough for him. He finds out that Mordecai is not just anybody, but he's a Jew. And so Haman's eyes light up. He ceases looking at Mordecai to get revenge. And he looks back and he says, I can take on the whole Jewish people right now. Now the text gives us a little bit of help. We, we, we understand that he's revealed as an Agagite. I mean, what on earth is an Agagite? Well, I'm about to tell you. An Agagite is a relative of King Agag, who we're introduced to in 1 Samuel 15. Saul spares his life when he's told to annihilate and, and, and kill. He spares his life. Samuel, the prophet, comes in. Yeah, not having that. Off with his head. It's pretty gruesome. But a King Agag was an enemy of the Jews. In fact, if you scroll back through uh, Agag's line, you get to the Amalekites who stood against God's people as they're going towards Sinai. And God said, I'm going to blot their name off the earth. There's a history, there's a long line of grudge bearing with this man. So when Harmon looks at the whole Jewish community with evil intent, we realize there's more evil at work than meets the eye. You know, it doesn't matter what God's people do. You can be the nicest Christian in the world. Somebody's going to hate you just for believing in Christ. Uh, and, and that's what Jesus says. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have people who oppose you. It shouldn't surprise you because it happened in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.15, what's known as, to Bible college students, the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first mention of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. God speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The offspring pointing to Christ who would ultimately be victorious over the old serpent, as John calls him in Revelation 12. Harmon just needed a way in. He's given it. The wheels are in motion. He manages to manipulate the king Xerxes and have all of that power that the king has invested in his own hands. And he sets to work. The plan comes together to annihilate all Jews on a single day. It kind of echoes the ethnic cleansing of Rwanda in the, the, the mid-90s where on a, over a period of 100 days, a million Tutsis were slaughtered. In a scary modern-day echo, Hitler, a modern day, if you like, at Harman, quoted passages from Esther. He actually said this, if the Jews are triumphant, if I lose... They will celebrate a second Purim. Chilling words and chilling hatred. Doesn't our world need Jesus right now? 
the sheer scale of brutality hanging over them, confusion, fear, upset. You can imagine the emotions going around the, the Jewish communities. And Mordecai reaches out to Esther, who's in the protected walls of the palace, and he reaches out to her with concrete proof of the genocide. The bull's now in Esther's court. She pushes back, as, you've, uh, as we read earlier. She outlines the consequences of going before the king. She'd done it before, but this is a very different situation. With 300 women at the king's disposal, when you've not been seen for 30 days, that's bad news. That's bad news. I'll do it, okay? I'll do it. It doesn't look good. Mordecai challenges, and it's one of those lines. This is the mic drop moment. If you're thinking on IMDb to find the best quotes of a movie, if Esther was a movie, it would be this one, 414. Who knows but that you're in such a position for such a time as this. Mordecai is the kind of guy who calls a spade a spade. This is just obvious. You just need to respond. If you don't do it, nobody else will. We need that. The text kind of asks us, have we got somebody who will challenge us to step out? Have we got somebody like a Mordecai in our lives who will say, you've just got to do that. You've just got to step forward. And you protest. You say, I can't do it. I can't do it. And they just say, you've just got to believe. God will see you through. Or maybe you're that person who needs to be in the Mordecai to the Esther. I need to challenge somebody. It's painful, but I know I've got to speak a difficult word to somebody. Lord, would you give me the strength I need to speak that word? For Esther, this was the key moment. Now, courage isn't needed on a daily basis. Uh, there are moments in our lives where it's really needed. And it doesn't matter how much courage we're talking about. You just need courage. You don't need loads of courage. Esther, you just need one little bit of courage. One moment, just step forward. And this was her moment. Now, Dutch courage would have been understandable. Dutch courage is where you line up the shots like this and you go like this and you go out and you play Russian roulette with the emperor of the greatest nation the world had seen to date. But Esther responds with true courage. She reverses the roles from being commanded to now commanding the Jews. Fast for me, get involved in this. And this line, and though it is against the law, I will see the king. If I die, I must die. Now that sounds fatalistic. Well, just whatever happens. But it's not. It's a statement of intent of a, a woman who now realizes that she's got a queenly position and she can act on behalf of her people. You know, this was going to take more than superhuman effort. It was going to take more than tech. It's going to take more than having the right people involved. This was a moment of just trusting God. Lord, I need you right now. I need you. I've got nothing. God isn't a lucky charm to get us through, but he's somebody that we can throw ourselves on and throw ourselves into. And she leans into God. Pride shouts out really loud, doesn't it? It says, faith is a crutch. You don't need God. You can do it in your own strength. Militant atheists would love you to believe that faith is just a crutch. Well, here's the thing, I need a crutch. There are times in my life when I can't get by. I can't do it in my own strength. In fact, some of my worst moments are when I just thought, I can, I can do this. I can make this happen. It gets you so far, your own charisma, your own strength. You can stand up, you can do stuff. You can make it happen, you can pull things off. Some of you are really good at pulling things off in your own strength. Parenting, at work, with friends, in situations, you can rescue people. But there's a point. I say, Lord, I need you. I need you. 
I can't do this on my own strength. I've got a friend who's not yet a Christian, and he's a super competent person, worked for Honda, worked pretty high up in, in their infrastructure. And he said, Andy, there's a time that I almost prayed. Um, and the time I almost prayed was we were mountaineering, and I had a big group with me, and I got lost. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to pray. Oh, no, I can't pray. I can't pray. But I don't know where I am. I've got nothing. So, uh, Lord, hold on a minute. I think I know that path we just went down. And he worked his way out. A guy with super competence worked his way out. I'm praying for him that one day he'll realize that actually God doesn't just help us go that extra mile, but God helps us do things differently as well. And God brings something that we could never bring to the table. I love this. This is 2 Timothy 1.7. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. God's sense of humor. He does the things that we don't think we could. You know, I um, don't actually often tell this story very often, but I grew up with a speech impediment. I couldn't say wardrobe. I had incredible fear in front of other people. I have a memory of standing in front of a school at a sixth form event, and I was presenting on a piece of engineering we'd done. And we had countless parents and young, young people, my peers, and I stood up and I had a piece of A5 paper, and I had about two lines that I needed to say. I looked at my lines, I looked out there, I started to say things, and then I got nothing. I've got nothing. My next memory is sitting in a deserted canteen with a teacher coming over and handing me a glass of water and patting me on the back and saying, you'll be okay. Apparently, I garbled for about five to 10 seconds and fell backwards. Don't know what happened. It's a complete blank. I was not cut out to speak in front of people. Just not. Confidence stripped away. Uh, I could tell you all about my relationship with my dad, etc., which we've worked through and I can talk about freely. But I was not somebody who would work and do this sort of stuff today. And it's a story of a thousand, a hundred thousand times of saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I'll just step, take another little step for, for, further forward, Lord. Lord, I can't do it, but you can. And God's spirit drives us forward. I love that Esther isn't a prophetess. I love that Mordecai isn't a priest. This is about ordinary Christians here. Ordinary God-fearers following an extraordinary God. This is not about our strength. It's about his. They're not trained for this. They haven't been to Moreland's Bible College, although it's a great option for people thinking about studying theology. Shameless. Esther steps into the king's presence. Now, you're going to love this. The Greek version of the Old Testament is called the LXX, which is 70, for those of you who are counting. And it's about 70 scholars, Jewish scholars, who put this thing together. And listen to this from the Greek version. On the third day, when she ended her prayer, she arrayed herself in splendid attire. Then, after invoking the aid of the all-seeing God, she took her two maids with her, leaning daintily on one, while the other followed her train. She was radiant and with perfect beauty, but her heart was frozen with fear. When she had gone through the doors, she stood before the king. He was seated on his royal throne, clothed in majesty, covered with gold and precious stones, and he was most terrifying. Lifting his face, he looked at her in fierce anger, and the queen faltered and turned pale and faint and collapsed. Then God changed the spirit of the king to gentleness. In alarm, he sprang from his throne and took her in his arms, and he comforted her with soothing words and said to her, What is it, Esther? I am your brother. Take courage. You shall not die. Come near. Then he raised the golden scepter and touched her to her neck. And he embraced her and said, Speak to me. 
And she said to him, I saw you, my Lord, like an angel of God. And my heart was shaken with fear at your glory, for you are wonderful, my Lord, and your countenance is full of grace. But as she was speaking, she fell fainting. I mean, what a load of rubbish. Where did that come from? I mean, if that's not a puke fest, I don't know what is. The LXX, more God, less theology. It's stuffed full of references to God. But here's the wonderful thing about the story of Esther. It's one of the, book, the only book in the Bible you cannot find a reference, a direct reference to God. And yet his fingerprints are all over the whole thing. You can't see Esther call on the name of God. And yet she steps out in faith in the one who could save. Esther is resolute. She faces possible death. She doesn't need much courage, just one step. That's all she needs. And she wins his favor. Just one step. Sat down with a discipleship group and we went around and we, we asked the question, what's the biggest decision you've ever made in your life? Now I'm talking to mainly 15, 16, 17 year olds. And the first one says, to be a Christian. I was like, good answer. Underneath, I'm really proud of him, that's good. The next person, Dan, Dan said it was to do geography and maths at school. I was pleased with that answer. He, Dan wasn't actually a Christian, but he was coming along to the discipleship group. Lydia said a, a, a choice that she was making. The next person said to be, be a Christian. And then Ben, I pointed at Ben, and Ben said, to be a Christian in front of my friends. The proof was sitting just there. His name was Dan. To be a Christian in front of my friends. One little bit of courage to say, hey, do you want to come along with me? Do you want to come along to the discipleship group? It'll be a great time. We'll have so much fun. They eat cake. Whatever the bribery was. I love the story, that story, because there's a recognition, there's a cost to courage. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost in whatever culture you're in, in whatever situation you find yourself in. But we can trust him for the next step. Sometimes I just want to stay quiet. I don't want to do this. I don't want to get up and preach. I was happy in Petworth this afternoon at four o'clock. But there's something beautiful about following after Jesus and allowing him to take the little you have and transform it to feed and bless others.